I'm delighted to be here with Beverly B. Preik, who is a poet and translator. She is a Canadian who lives in Paris. Um, she was shortlisted for a forward prize for her poetry collection White, White Sheets in 2012. Um, and her most recent collection is the Hotel Eden, which came out with Carcanet in 2018. Beverly's translations include Guillaume Apollinaire, um, The Little Auto, which won the 2013 Scott Moncrief Prize, uh, Francis Ponge's Unfinished Ode to Mud, and Baudelaire's Invitation to the Voyage. Which is out, I think, okay. uh, which came out um, very recently. 2020. So thank you for joining me. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Um, and I, I wanted to start by asking you about um, the physicality and immediacy of your poetry. And I think it's, it's when I first read it, that's what I was struck by. It's delight in the present moment and the sense it gives that anything worth doing should, any, anything worth doing should be embraced. And so the collection, um, your most recent collection, opens with the epigraph from the Scottish poet Douglas Dunn, who says that only a garden can teach gardening. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this, like whether writing poetry is central to this sense of enjoyment that seems to come across that, that you take in living. Does it help you kind of savour the present? And does your compositional process, I suppose there, there must be some sort of gap between, you know, the, the spontaneity, the immediacy, the, the ease of the poems and then the process of, of writing them and composing them. Right now, where do I start? That's a lot. <laughs> I was look. I have a new collection that I'm working on, uh, which is its publication isn't imminent, mm -hmm. but I was writing down things I thought make might make a good epigraph for the book, and one of them was Pessoa, the Portuguese poet's um, poem, in fact, that says the meaning of things mm -hmm. is things. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that takes us back in a way to Francis Ponge, mm -hmm. who was the first French writer mm -hmm. I translated. Mm -hmm. And his most famous book, of course, is In Defense of Things. Mm -hmm. And it's a collection of poems describing things, but generally it's a metaphor for the poetic process mm -hmm. for writing. Mm -hmm. And I worked on that for a long time before I published it. And it got me started every day. I'd go, so we're talking now about the poetic process. Mm -hmm. I would go to the place I worked in the morning. I'm quite dogged about taking my mornings. And I would translate a bit of Ponge. Mm -hmm. And that would immediately inspire me to write something. I was itching to finish the ponche I was doing and start working on my own poem. Mm -hmm. So that's probably one of the answers to that question. The other thing is, uh, yes, I'm often inspired by descriptive poets. Um, for example, uh, I love Larkin, but I like perhaps well, not most of all, but one of his most interesting poems for me is the one called Show Saturday, which is often criticized as being just description. So it doesn't take the description to another level. It just revels in the description of what's happening at this, um, I think, fair of some kind uh, with lots and lots of animals. And, of course, 
Elizabeth Bishop has always been one of my favorite poets, and she, of course, is a very descriptive poet. Mm -hmm. And I very much admire Marianne Moore, too, who's another yes. yeah. descriptive poet yeah. in quite a different register. So those are some of the answers to that question. Um, perhaps all the poets I translate are descriptive, certainly Apollinaire is quite a descriptive poet mm -hmm. uh, with a surrealist tint to it. Mm -hmm. And recently I started translating Baudelaire uh, and that's been an ongoing project for a while too in the hopes that um, I could perhaps learn something from him that I hadn't been able to do already in the books I'd published uh, with his much more condensed and more idea-based poems. Mm -hmm. Similarly with Yves Bonnefoy, mm -hmm. another poet. That's, that's fascinating. <laughs> the, the description thing is interesting because I think poets are often warned away from it. And yet there's also something that comes with embracing that. Yeah, yeah no, I, I definitely am interested in description and I admire poets. I suppose it's partly because I don't really believe in meaning. I mean, uh, Pessoa, the meaning of meaning is, the meaning of things is things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's quite a, I mean, it's a tautology, of course, but it's also for me quite a profound statement because like everybody else, I'm interested in meaning. I want to know what's the meaning of my life here on earth, what's, what, what's the meaning of this poem, why am I writing it? Mm -hmm. And I realize that often I'm just writing to celebrate some small experience mm -hmm. and to get the texture of that experience, mm -hmm. to, um, to get a moment on the page so that somebody reading it can relate to it and perhaps hopefully if it's a decent poem relive that moment and feel for it what I felt for it. Mm. One of the examples of that I would say is a poem that I wrote on the metro. I can't even remember what it was called but it was a poem about two young women getting on the metro in Paris. I remember it. And they were talking about they were talking about something with such great liveliness yeah. that they almost missed their stop. <laughs> and all of a sudden, these two women who were sitting near me and who were talking like mad, looked at each other, the doors were still open, mm. and they realized they had to get off there. And they got off very quickly. And I looked at the man who was sitting across the aisle, a, a young man, and we laughed because we both had exactly the same experience. Uh, this, this was a wonderful comic act. Yeah. And that moment of um, meeting somebody else, uh, sharing a moment with somebody else, a total stranger, yeah. and realizing how often you do this, yeah. especially in the city where you're constantly coming across strangers, yeah. uh, and how this is so human. and. Yeah that you can share these things, that you can meet somebody's eye who's from a totally different mm. part of society from you mm. um, and enjoy something that's just happened. Yes, sort of the opposite of Baudelaire's A une passante, where he just lets her pass by. Right, right, <laughs> and regrets it afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I mean, that leads me, I was, I was wanting to ask about pleasure as well in your writing. So, speaking of white sheets, Evan Boland? Yes. Um, it says that the book provides pleasure on every page. 
But I, I, I don't think it's just that your writing kind of gives pleasure, which it does, but there's also this, this sense that it's about pleasure. So poems like Behind, Before, which I don't know if it was a sort of a bit of a reference to John Donne. Definitely. Okay, okay. Definitely. I read I read that part. <laughs> um, which sees so I'm gonna quote from the poem, um, fog sliding down like the goose down quilt. Sorry, fog sliding down like the goose down quilt, you yank up in the small cold hours as your bare thigh searches the bedclothes for his. And there's a poem just after which declares that it's on waking sex is best. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are also all these wonderful moments of, of eating and delighting in fruit and fresh produce. Absolutely. Which I think it kind of feeds into the same sensual, sensory energy. And, and I wondered, I suppose, if, if pleasure is, is key to your poetics and how you think about poetry, and if you had any sort of models in mind, or if sort of as you're saying that the thing being the thing, whether your focus is, is just on life rather than literature when you're writing and... You know, I think that's an aspect that's missing from a lot of English language, mm -hmm. women's poetry. Yeah. It's actually quite current at the moment to talk about the body mm -hmm. as a theme. Um, I've always wanted to celebrate bodily experiences and it's true that there's a kind of erotics of experience, so not necessarily always talking about sex, yeah. although I do that too. Yeah. Um, but the food poems I think are probably a, a substitute for a sexual poem and perhaps even just looking at objects. Mm -hmm and being attentive to um, still lifes. Uh, I have a, a shelf of books in my, like all of us, extensive library at home, which is erotica. Uh, and yeah. I've always enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, I should probably not admit that really? I have loved reading Death the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> I love <laughs> Histoire d'eau. Mm -hmm. Catherine uh, Millet, who wrote the book about her sexual life, mm -hmm. I find fascinating. Now, I hide it. It's, it's on the shelf. It's not a very big, it's not a very big shelf, but I sometimes put something up to hide that shelf. It's my secret shelf. Um, the French are much more uh, open about uh, writing about sex. They have a different attitude. Um, but yes, I definitely think that pleasure in all its senses is part of my poetics and mm. um, I can still get a tingle in all the right places <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> it, it reminds me of, um, I've been speaking about the, the French writer actually, Nina Leger, I think her name is, uh, who wrote, it's a book, it, came, it was published by Granta in the UK very recently, translated by someone who went to St Andrews actually, um, and it's, it's almost like a series of prose poems written on the penis, um, but it's about a, a, a female character who um, has these encounters in anonymous hotel rooms so that she can remember the particular, not not man, but penis. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's very kind I'll of... I'll have to look for that. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's quite laboratory-like, but it is, it's very different in the sense that it is 
this kind of direct, unflinching aestheticization of the... Of the penis. Yeah, of the, the male side of things, you know, the sort of right. really inhabiting the female gaze, like t- taking it as far as it can, right. you know. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and that could be very cold and clinical, mm. as well as being mm. warm and sexy. Yeah. yeah. Um, that brought something to my mind. Now, what was it? Oh, I've been working on a poem lately. Um, two poems, actually. And it was called Vanity. And I took it to one of my poet friends, mm. and we looked at it together. And he said, oh, but do you know uh, James Merrill's poem? Uh, because he has a poem about looking at himself in the mirror uh, and seeing his father. And it was indeed a poem that had started about my mother, who had, I remember when she was very elderly and living in a senior place, going in, and I was going down to dinner in her residence with her, and I said, well, how about putting on some lipstick? Mm. And she said... I don't need lipstick. And I said, yes, you do. And she said, no, your sister says I don't need lipstick. Uh, Anyways, eventually I persuaded her to put on some lipstick to give her face a bit more color. She was well into her 90s at the time. And the poem gradually turned into a celebration of makeup and cunning, female cunning. and looking at myself in a mirror as I grow older myself and just wondering how much of that face I'm looking at, like James Merrill was my mother's face Mm. or is becoming my mother's Mm. face. Uh, And it ends this poem at the moment, it's not finished, with telling a story that my mother told when I was grown up but younger about how she once was on a holiday with my father and somebody tried to pick her up. And she, her conclusion to that story was, a younger man, and she said, at my age. And she was clearly very pleased that (laughs) this had happened, even though it went no further than that. (laughs) So I've played with that. It's become part fiction, part... uh, part non-fiction, but it was initially inspired by remembering that. Yeah. And and your poetry, sort of thinking of, of place, it slips between all these different settings and places from bedrooms to gardens, um, the Apple store to the kitchen, museums to orchards, Paris to Glasgow, um, and the poem Hornets, which is from the Hotel Eden, has these lines... Um, I sit in a white plastic garden chair, my coffee mug steams on a boulder, and I wondered how important place is to you as a poet and where you most like to write. Right. That's a difficult problem for me because I have found when I come to putting poems in a book that the places are all over the place, so to speak, Uh, and I don't often, sometimes I don't like that. I feel it's hard to organize the collection when it seems to be jumping around the world so much. I find that distracting. And the collection I'm working on at the moment, uh, I'm trying to unify, well, not to make so much of a particular place, Mm. 
but universalize in some way the settings so that it's not clear whether something happened in California, in British Columbia, where I grew up, mm -hmm. or in Paris, although it's harder to do that with the French poems. So there, I would say that my most important setting is British Columbia and the Pacific Ocean because that was my earliest setting. That's where my memory begins. My grandfather had a house on the edge of the ocean and my very earliest memories are of being allowed to go down to the beach by myself and do the things you do on the beach. Mm -hmm. Recently I thought, gosh, a lot of these poems might have been inspired by Robert Louis Stevenson's Child's Garden of Verses. When I was, uh, what's the poem, a, a little pail they gave to me to dig the sandy shore in every hole the sea came up till it could come no more. And um, I thought, maybe Robert Louis Stevenson is in there too. Mm. Um, I would say that my California I can work into the British Columbia setting because it's the ocean, um, it's, it's the west coast, it's the mountains, the trees. Uh, France is much harder. And I would say that the last book, The Hotel Eden, is the book in which I've made the most of the French, my two French settings, one in the south of France, where my husband uh, has a family house, and Paris, where we've lived for 30 years. Um, but it takes a long time mm. to want to write about places. I think viscerally, a place only makes its mark, at least on my consciousness and my sensibility, mm. at least this is what I've discovered, once I've become very familiar with it. Mm. And in the case of Paris and this house in the south of France, where we've been going for a very long time, it was only after we moved to California, my husband took a job in the Bay Area, that I came and then we would come back to France and that I began to want to write about that and to realize that this was really part of my life, even though here I was, a little Canadian girl from the backwoods of, of Canada, mm -hmm. backwoods of the world, really. Um, and here I was walking around the streets of Paris, and Paris meant something to me, and the south of France mm -hmm. meant even more to me. And, and you've spoken a little bit about translation and sort of how the, the things you learn and sort of wanting to learn specifically from Baudelaire this time. Um, and you've translated works by Hélène Sixou as well. Um, and obviously if you translate a writer that means spending a lot of time with their work. And I wondered if there are many sort of seepages of influence and or currents that move between the writers who you're translating and, and your own work, whether and how noticeable they are to you. Like, if you read your poems, you know, you sort of said that Ponge inspired you on a daily basis. When you read your poems back, do you, do you see bits of him? Do you see bits of Apollinaire? Do you see Baudelaire in there somehow as well? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. And... The answer is, well, first of all, I should perhaps say that I'm a selfish translator. Mm -hmm. I only trans trans 
late people I hope to learn from. And that's generally writers I consider to be very, very great writers, like Ponge, like Apollinaire, especially perhaps Apollinaire. I have a, a good friend, Marilyn Hacker, who also does a great deal of translating, and Marilyn is a most unselfish translator. <laughs> she translates for the good of the world, so that a number of young poets, often women poets, often gay or lesbian poets, become better known. And I envy her that, but I have to say that each of the writers I've spent several years usually translating is somebody uh, I regarded as a kind of advanced teacher mm. of poetry. Mm. So Apollinaire is probably the one I still feel most influenced by, partly because perhaps he writes poems that are often very much like Elizabeth Bishop's poems. They have a narrative element, they have long lines that run over, mm -hmm. they're full of description and a little bit of humor usually too. Um, translating Yves Bonnefoy, I was hoping to learn something about French sensibility and abstraction and in a way Baudelaire was like that too. After I finished um, perhaps the Apollinaire project I started looking around for someone else I wanted to spend a long time translating. Mm. And I thought, well, I can't think of a name. Uh, why I, I really should know more about Baudelaire. And I read viscerally. I read by translating. Mm. And gradually I got more and more involved in that. Um, I started, interestingly, in view of what you've said, by translating the poems that were most sensual about mm. women very often. And then I realized that, that this was heading towards a book and that you couldn't ignore the desolate, bitter poems in Baudelaire. So I started branching out towards poems that were less close to my own sensibility and, of course, couldn't help learning a lot from doing that. At the moment, uh, I've, I've again been looking around for a new project after Baudelaire and doing a bit of this and a bit of that and saying, no, I don't want to spend a long time on this. Mm. Um, and I've ended up translating, I'm working on Leopardi at the moment, the uh, Italian poet from uh, the Romantic period, the Italian Romantic period. And again, I can see this is going to be somebody I'm going to spend a long time translating because it is close to my own sensibility in his descriptions of villages in, uh, in Italy, um, what he sees. And he's a very great poet, and I see that I can learn something from him. Mm. And I've continued to start my writing day by doing a bit of translation, because it inspires me to, you know, I know I'll never be as good a poet as any of these people I've translated, but it makes me grow as a writer. Mm. Um, it helps me to read these writers that I would probably not be so likely to continue reading if I weren't translating them. Uh, 
so I can't recommend translation enough. So. <laughs> and have you ever sort of dabbled with writing your own poems in French? Or no. In, never? No. <laughs> I have occasionally translated a poem for somebody, but yeah. an English poem into French. Yeah. But no, I wouldn't feel I could do that. Yeah. And the only reason I'm tackling the Aaliyah party, uh, because I'm not totally... Well, I, I read Italian pretty well, but I don't speak Italian very well. Yeah. Uh, but I have help in the form of a graduate student uh, at Stanford. And, um, and I'm doing it very slowly. I, I'm translating a long philosophical poem of his at the moment, and I'm doing it sentence by sentence. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> Last question about favourites. Do you have a favourite poem out of all the ones that you've written? And do you have, do you have a favourite word in French? A favourite word in French? Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I'll have to think about that. Ask me again. <laughs> but amongst all the poems I've written, it's usually the most recent ones mm. I like best. Yeah. And um, there's some that have just come out in a pamphlet form, the one we were talking about earlier. And um, one of them in particular was published by the New Yorker, another one was published by the TLS. And I tend to think that when a good place publishes a poem, it must be a good poem, <laughs> although that's a, a fallacy, of course. Uh, so I would say that the poem called Apple Thieves is one of my favorites. A uh, poem about a shell is one of my favorites. And then the poem that concludes this, which hasn't been published anywhere else, which is called Tango, is probably another favorite at the mm. moment. I'd have to look back at the books mm. to know. You asked about Hélène Sixou. Um, mm. Very often I say, well, Hélène, you, she's giving a lecture and she wants to know if I remember what was something good to talk about from an earlier book. And I, and I say, well, then you know in this book you... And it's probably a book I've just finished translating and she's totally forgotten about it because mm. it was published three or four years mm. ago. Wow. I'm always a bit embarrassed to go back to the poems I've written in earlier books because you immediately want to start revising. I'm sure you've had the same experience. <laughs> well, on that note, um, I think it's time for some poems. And I've, I've picked out a few. So the, the first one I was sort of interested in hearing um, is Landline. Oh, yes, very interesting. And, I mean, it, I, liked, I liked how it spoke about communication, intimacy, family. And I love the lines. I love the, the image of the phone as that hard-shelled crab hunkered in the den. It, it makes me think of, is it the Dali sculpture? He, he's got like a lobster. Yeah, it probably pony. is something to do with that, I think. That's right, it's his lobster. I, I'm definitely sure it is. Mm. I've, used to, I've tried to do that before. I don't know whether it was published or not. Mm. Uh, it's funny because this was one of the last poems to go in the book. Mm -hmm. And I've read it a couple of times at readings and I'm not being all at all sure that there weren't a few lines I should have forgotten about. Uh, and people have said that's one of the best poems in that book. Yeah. So uh, I like it's it. very interesting. So shall I read it? Yes, yes. So please. Landline. He disliked the phone, that hard-shelled crab hunkered in the den. If he had to pick it up, he'd say, Hello, I'll get your mother. Or your mother's on the other line. Goodbye. 
It took me years to notice we'd never had a conversation on the phone. Retired now, he fished, gardened, read paperbacks borrowed from the library, the ones that make the time go by. He dreamed. Yes, I think he dreamed. Visiting in summer, I'd catch him, a tool dangling from his hand, staring at the mainland across Georgia Strait. One foot in the sun, the other in the shade, the watered lawn, as if he'd forgotten what he came out for. What's with the phone, I asked him. We were picking oysters. The tide low, we could walk out to the rocky outcrop we called our island my imagination's prime waterfront and origin. Stalking the tide line, a heron watched us warily. I still try to sneak up on them. You only get so close before they bolt. He thought for a moment, then half-jokingly, that was his way, offering me an oyster he'd shucked to slurp, replied, I guess I'm afraid that when I pick up, there'll be somebody there. <laughs> End of conversation. The tide had turned. Water was lapping the purple sea stars clumped in fissures, favelas of mussels and barnacles. We sloshed back across the shingle with our buckets of oysters. The silence not uncomfortable. Thank you. <laughs> and, and then the next, the next poem, um, I was hoping you might read is, it's a very short one, um, Red Berries. Red Berries. This morning I walked to the farmer's market, half a mile over, half a mile back. I bought two slabs of the wild salmon, sweet butter to season it in, a wedge of ripe cheese. Ready to surrender, il s'abandonne, the goat farmer said and a basket of the red berries. Under every message, another message. Brilliant, thank you. And, and maybe we could finish with the shell from, sure. from the new pamphlet. A shell. The earth mother forms of this chalky shell belong to a sea snail exoskeleton. I pulled from debris upchucked by a tide on my shoreline of memory. Rain haunted, littered with logs, the storms rip from booms, southering to sawmills and lumber yards. I touch the too solid flesh, finger the elegant mathematical spirals, slip into the voluptuous interior of this empty house, a nudge will set rocking almost indefinitely. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And thank you for talking with me. Thank you very much. Thank you for your questions, which <laughs> made me think about things that are helpful too. Good. <laughs>